Chapter 3 Stella versus the Dragon Stella stumbled around a corner, one hand on the wall for balance. Now that she had left palliative care and followed mad Cassandra downstairs, she couldn't see the infuriating woman anywhere. Blinking, and only just managing to stay upright on her slippered feet, she did her best to take stock of the corridor before her. On her right, the door read, Room 33. Stella's heart rose with a sense of familiarity, of home. What color was the sponge pattern on the corridor? Yellow. That meant she was in Daffodil Corridor, where she lived. And when she turned to her left, she was facing Room 34, her own room. She had left it only that morning when Cheryl, the care worker with the Giaconda smile, had wheeled Stella upstairs to die. Well, she was back. And although nobody could call room 34 palatial, it was her home. Had been so uh, for the last three months. Inside room 34, her own bed would be awaiting her. A single bed of reasonably generous proportions, with an excellent mattress from Sears. It had been her final indulgence before coming to the care home, and worth the breathtaking price tag. Grateful for home and bed, Stella was more than ready to lie down again. But then she saw it. The suitcase on the floor outside room 34. Stella had never seen this suitcase before. It sat outside her room, all black like an anvil. She shuffled, she shuffled up close to the suitcase. She didn't have to employ her deductive mind to predict that it would be heavy with somebody else's worldly goods. This suitcase and its usurping owner loomed between her and the only place left in the world where she could lay her head. Fairmount Manor had given her room to somebody else. Her insides swam and she identified the feeling as one she had last experienced several decades before when, as a middle-aged woman, she had opened the door to her younger lover's rooms. There, on his mat, with the toes pointed towards his bedroom, had stood a pair of shiny red kitten-heeled sandals that were not hers. Those bright sandals had lit up the doorway, bright as a lipsticked smile meant for somebody else. She had closed the door and turned away, because the red shoes had stood for heartbreak. She couldn't turn away now. This black suitcase outside the door to her room meant something even worse. Something more basic even than love. So, alone in Daffodil Corridor in her open-heeled terry cloth slippers and nightgown, Stella tried to think how to fight for her home. But somehow, 
her slippers pulled her away from room 34, urging and tugging her down along the corridor toward the stairs. And she might have kept going all the way back upstairs to palliative care had it not been for the open staff room door and what she saw inside it. Something lay on the floor that shouldn't be there. Chapter 4 Look at that! If there was anything that proved Fairmount Manor existed outside the great teeming workaday world of ordinary people, it was the sight of a woman's handbag lying open with its guts spread out across the floor. Anywhere else in the real world, the handbag would have been on its owner's shoulder or tucked away in a locker or the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet. But here, among the elderly, the bag had been left out on a shelf just inside the staff room door, whence it had fallen to the floor and so had transformed itself into a puzzle. Stella touched the handbag with the toe of her terry slipper. Residents were meant to stay out of the staff room. But how could she leave a fallen handbag as it was? Cheryl, the care worker with the Mona Lisa smile, would soon notice the mess and clean it up. But the younger, loving Reliza would walk right by, not because she was lazy, but because her head was sure to be in the clouds after Dr. Terry's last visit. Being in love made Reliza even kinder than she used to be, but no better at all at housekeeping. Steadying herself with a hand on the shelves, Stella bent her knees deeply. They made an ominous sound as she shifted her weight. You know you're old when you bend down to tie your laces and look around to see if there's anything else you can do while you're down there. She had once thought that joke funny. Stella let go of the shelves and sat down with a thud on the cold floor. One bare leg bent to each side of the mess of papers and coins that had fallen out of the handbag. She then remembered the old advertisement. I've fallen and I can't get up. The ad had been meant seriously, but had inspired a cultural wave of satirical chuckling at the elderly. How glad she was now that she had never found that particular ad amusing. Grimacing, she pushed her glasses into place and set to tidying the handbag's contents back inside, leaving the letters until last. The coins slipped around a bit, but she got most of them, and with her fingers swept a few pennies that would never be missed under the shelves to the right of the door. The letters were much easier to deal with. She packed them neatly together and sighed over the message repeated on each one, with what appeared to be increasing emphasis. She was not a nosy person. Really, she wasn't interested enough in other people's letters to be nosy, but she was a reader, and as long as her vision was behaving itself, she couldn't help reading anything put in front of her. On each page, the letters were large, and the warnings 
ominous. Your payment in arrears. Call our department immediately. You have not responded to messages. Feeling like a sneak, Stella slid the letters into the handbag and shut it. Then, having first heaved the bag onto the counter, she got slowly to her feet. She held onto the counter, breathing heavily and staring at the handbag in front of her. It looked all wrong, sitting out in plain view as if somebody could just take it. Stella took it. She hung the bag over her arm. How naked she used to feel without her own handbag. It had been a brown shoulder bag she'd carried for years, never needing to change it. She had bought it in Mexico, charmed by the intricate leather punched in the shape of leaves and grasses. For the first year, everything she put into it came out smelling like a burl. Enjoying the everyday weight of the handbag on her arm, she took a step out into the corridor. There she paused to consider where a person deprived of her room might go for help. But as she wavered in the empty corridor, a quiet but compelling sound distracted her from her worries. She turned back towards room 34, her room by rights, now the room of the suitcased stranger. Certain now of what she was hearing, she took a couple of steps near the door. A couple more. There was no mistaking the sound of a woman crying. Somebody's crying, Stella Ryman. So Cassandra had spoken truly. Yet many residents must cry from time to time. In fact, although she remembered little from her first days at Fairmount Manor, Stella did recall sobbing herself to sleep her first few nights here. But what surprised her about this particular crying was the timbre of the voice. There was no rasp of age to it. The woman who was crying was young, far too young to be a resident of Fairmount Manor. Ridiculously too young to be moving into room 34. Stella cocked her head toward the sound of the sobbing. On the day she thought she'd die, something inside her, something sharp of eye and mind, stretched and turned with a swirl of a great tweed cape. Stella smelled wet wool, the fog of Baker Street and pipe tobacco. As she moved toward the door, she murmured, Here's a mystery. Chapter 5 Due to safety precautions, residents' doors at Fairmount Manor were never locked. Stella had never managed to resign herself to the lack of privacy. But on this otherwise difficult mid-morning, it made things simple. She slid the handbag back just above her wrist where a handbag belonged, and then she opened the door to room 34. There, on Stella's stripped-down Sears mattress, a yellow-haired woman sat weeping into a tissue as if her last hope had gone. Stella took a step inside the room. She had thought to find a stranger in her room, not a member of Fairmount Manor's staff. 
Cheryl? Holding the tissue to her nose, Cheryl looked up. Mrs. Ryman, are you better then? I tried to tell the director not to make us move you upstairs. I'm so happy to see you. Tears overtook her again. It would break your heart to see Cheryl so tender and pink around the nose and eyes. She appeared drawn and older than her thirty-something years. What could so upset Cheryl of a Gilconda smile? Stella made her way to the visitor's chair near the bed and sat down. She set the handbag on the floor beside her and asked, Cheryl, has something happened to one of your children? Cheryl shook her head. Well, then things can't be so bad. It's horrible, Cheryl burst out. They say I stole something. <laughs> Nonsense. Stella darted a sidelong guilty glance down at the handbag she'd taken. That they would even think such a thing, her tears returned in greater volume. You're as honest as the day is long. The director must have a couple of your personnel file in her office, a copy of your personnel file in her office. And that's your documentation. Stella, having worked in the teaching profession for 40 years, had extensive experience in cheering up crying women. Whether they were teachers or parents, she could calm them down in moments, given access to tea. Here in Fairmont Manor, and without any tea at hand, she was happy to see that the knack had not left her. As she spoke, there was a visible receding of the tide of tears and a lightening of the area under Cheryl's eyes. Briskly, Stella took the next step. She asked, Now, who are they? I mean, who said such a terrible thing about you? Cheryl said, It was Mrs. McAndrew. Across the hall, you know. Of course. The lie came automatically. Just now, Stella hadn't the slightest idea who lived across the hall, but a moment's reflection upon Cheryl dabbing at her eyes with a tissue brought recall. Mrs. Alice McAndrew. Stella folded her arms across the front of her nightgown. I call her the dragon. Cheryl nodded and Stella could see that she was trying to smile. The care worker sat up and pulled another tissue out of the sleeve of her pale blue smock. As she blew her nose, the teddies on her smock danced a little. It occurred to Stella that she had never seen Cheryl wear a different uniform. She must wash it every night. Stella guessed because it was invariably clean, and pale blue showed the dirt like nobody's business. Stella was reminded that the care worker was the main support of her three small children, and wasn't there something dodgy about the husband? But she couldn't think what. How appalling not to remember what this nice woman had confided in her. Everything will be all right. I'm sure it will. I can't see how, Cheryl said. 
Stella realized that this was one of those conversations into which she was doomed to interject banal uh, phrases such as this. Yet to counter cruel acts, you really needed phrases that were broad in scope and as easily recognizable as a friend's face. It will all work out. You'll see. Tell me, what does the dragon think you stole? Cheryl straightened herself and let out a long, tired-sounding sigh. A coin. A coin? Stella frowned. That seems very small beans to me, Cheryl. How would rich old Mrs. McAndrew know whether she had one coin more or less in her possession? Privately, Stella considered that this accusation sounded just the cuckoo sort of resident complaint that the staff members at Fairmount Manor were expected diplomatically to ignore. But Cheryl was shaking her head. This was a valuable coin, an antique. And worth quite a lot of money, Stella clarified. Yes, I see. With a nod to Robert Browning, Stella thought, somebody gave orders. All smiles stopped. There were harsher acts than unfounded accusations, she knew, but such indictments were quite cruel. It occurred to her that an obvious and important question needed to be asked. She looked down at the handbag beside her. Ah, uh, yes. Why you, Cheryl? Not that any of the staff appeared to me dishonest, but why you in particular? That's exactly what's so awful, Cheryl pulled at the hem of her teddy bear patterned smock. Mrs. McAndrew is such an unreasonable woman, and she never comes out of her room because she's afraid somebody will steal her things. Stella nodded. I've heard she brought some real treasures with her. The care worker continued. Mrs. McAndrew won't leave her room, so she has her meals brought into her, and she doesn't want Ollie or Eliza because, you know, because Mrs. McAndrew is a racist old so-and-so, Stella finished for her. Well, to be fair, some older people did grow up that way. Cheryl's blue-gray gaze entreated understanding. Of course, I don't agree with it, but anyway, she liked me. She requested me, and I went because she seemed so frail and because the director asked me to. I had to spend less time with people like you, people I like, in order to help Mrs. McAndrew out. Mrs. Warren, the director, made it sound like a compliment. Institutional management, Stella snorted. And so, when the coin went missing, Mrs. McAndrew said it was me who took it. It could only be me, be me because I was always in there, because I tidied and dusted her things for her, and because there followed a short pause while the word because hung in the air. Stella found herself gazing down at Cheryl's handbag again. With care for her joints, she reached down and hoisted it onto her lap. She said, Because you need the money more than most? 
The silence between them was heavy with agreement. Stella lowered her head. Reluctantly, she held the handbag out to Cheryl. I think you must have set this on the counter in the staff room. I found it spilled out on the floor in the corridor. I'm afraid that when I was tidying everything back inside, I happened to see the letters from the credit card companies. I'm very sorry. Cheryl reached out for her bag and Stella let it go. Rather the way you relinquish a baby to its mother. Thanking her, Cheryl opened it and looked inside as if to check whether anything was missing. This was not a tactful gesture, but it was so natural and automatic that Stella couldn't take it personally. Stella said, The director will realize that the dragon is simply a foolish old woman spouting nonsense. She nodded sharply. Take it from a foolish old woman who knows. That coin will turn up somewhere silly, like in the toe of her slipper or down the side of the mattress nearest the wall. She pictured the dragon pawing and clawing over her treasures inside her wealth-packed room 33. Stella gazed around her own room 34, empty of everything but chair, bed, dresser, and the only picture Stella had brought with her, hanging over the dresser, of white ducks in a shaded pond, stone cottage under a British blue sky. Cheryl, holding her bag tight against the front of her smock, sat up straight as if facing an accuser. Mrs. McAndrew said I took the coin when she was in the washroom. She's in the washroom a lot. Stella nodded. She spent a certain amount of time there herself. Cheryl continued. The director herself, Mrs. Warren, searched the room from top to bottom, even though you know how many expensive knickknacks and bits of furniture she's got. Mrs. Warren couldn't find it. The director herself had searched the room? Stella floundered, trying to think of something that would help. She had already said that Mrs. McAndrew was an old fool. She supposed that this might bear repeating. But somehow, without willing it, her eye came to rest on the picture that was hanging over the dresser. They must have left it hanging there for the new resident. Someone ought to have asked permission, she thought. It was almost the only long-term possession she brought from home. Undeniably, it was a poor copy of an obscure and sentimental landscape, and she couldn't remember now why, out of all the bits of art she had purchased from time to time over seventy years, she had hung on to this one. She must have chosen it, wrapped it, packed it. She tried to remember bringing it here, but could not. Yet she clearly remembered the list of items she had ordered from catalogues, beginning with her excellent mattress. But we've all had police checks, Cheryl was saying. Yes, Stella knew she sounded vague. She did her best to refocus on the conversation. The care worker sat up a little straighter, bawling her tissue in her fist. 
Her pallor had returned. But anyway, thank you for listening, Mrs. Ryman. Right, Stella shook herself. What can I do to help? Shall I go and see the director? I will testify to my complete faith in your honesty and integrity. But the crescents beneath Cheryl's eyes had deepened to a delicate lilac. Thanks, but there's nothing. She didn't finish her sentence. Silently, Stella finished it for her. There was nothing that elderly Stella could do. She was simply too old to be of help. Stella frowned. How wrong Cheryl was. Stella would see the director. She would make herself heard. Stella had once been an effective advocate for school library funds and staffing. She was just the person to help this poor woman keep her job. And then, by jingo, she'd get her room back. They could move the stranger with the black suitcase elsewhere. At the sound of a rap at the door, both women turned. Ollie's familiar form filled the doorway. He was carrying something in one hand. The large care worker's gaze traveled from Stella to his colleague, Cheryl, and he hefted a black suitcase from one hand to the other. Something wrong, Cheryl? Shaking her head, Cheryl blew her nose into another tissue. Stella could not take her eyes off the black suitcase in Ollie's hand. The stranger's suitcase. No, the usurper's suitcase. She would not leave room 34. They would have to pick her up and carry her out. Which Ollie was perfectly capable of doing, should such an action be required of him. Stella's throat felt thick and sore. Soldier on, Stella. She would not cry. Please don't bring that suitcase in here. Following her gaze, Ollie looked down at the suitcase he held in one huge hand. I was told to take this upstairs for you, Stella. You're feeling better, though, I see. Have you come back down for a visit? I beg your pardon? Stella looked again from Ollie to the suitcase. Yes, it was the black one, the same stranger's suitcase that had been sitting outside the door of her room. Your suitcase, Stella. Ollie held it up. My suitcase? Ollie was wrong. Mine is brown leather. My mother gave it to me long ago. Politely, Cheryl asked, Might you have bought a new one before coming to Fairmount Manor? Stella cursed the tremble in her voice. If it's mine, is it? With my things in it? Then please just leave it here, inside my room. She did not like the look Ollie and Cheryl exchanged. Then she recognized the problem they would have with her request. Institutional management again. Firmly, Stella said, I've come downstairs. I won't go back to palliative care. But the paperwork, Cheryl began. It's not that easy once you... Ollie interrupted cheerfully. Mrs. Warren gave the paperwork to me. 
I've already done it. Can't be undone. Stella sat down on the bed. I don't want to go back up there, she said to Cheryl. The woman she had just offered to help. How preposterous. Stella dreamt of standing up to the director. I can't. It would be the end of me. Cheryl, please help me. Before Cheryl could answer, Ollie laughed. It's God's waiting room up there. Now, Stella, I tell you what, paperwork can't be undone. But it can be ripped up, as if it never happened. Doesn't hurt me. That's good for you. Stella caught one hand in the other before her and clasped them to her middle. She had never warmed to Ollie. He was nothing to do with his size, but with his laugh. There were certain laughs that rubbed her the wrong way. She saw now that this too was a sort of prejudice, and she was sorry for it. She thanked him. He set the suitcase in the middle of her room and said, Welcome back to room 34, Stella, my Bella. <laughs> Thanks, Ollie. Still feeling shaky, she smiled up at him. You're very jolly. He laughed and left as Cheryl climbed down off the bed and opened the suitcase. The lid fell back onto the floor. Her own pastel leisure suits, bought expressly for Fairmount Living, along with her night clothes and other familiar garments, lay neatly folded inside. Would you mind setting my case on the bed, please? Stella asked. She hadn't known her own suitcase when she saw it. Cheryl had been quite right to reject Stella's offer of help. An elderly woman with nothing but leisure time made a wonderful listener, and nothing more. I'd like to unpack it myself and find something to wear. I'll help you dress, Mrs. Ryman, Cheryl said. She blinked hard, appearing at last to pull herself back together. You've had a hard day. The offer was welcome and resonated with warmth. I'll help you dress. Stella remembered dressing her little daughter, Junie, all those years back. The care and love she had put into folding down her daughter's cotton socks, buttoning her strawberry-colored cardigan up the front. And the sad day that came at last when June had firmly said, I can get dressed myself now, mother. It had been enough to break Stella's heart. Thank you, Cheryl, she said firmly, but I can dress myself. Once the door had closed behind the care worker, Stella stood for a moment, feeling exactly the old fool she was. Then, with hands that were still none too steady, she began to struggle out of the nightgown in which she had expected to die. 